So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you sure do, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 20 through 26 as we look at this section about Jesus talking about losing his life and his time and hour having come. So from the 12th chapter of John, in the 20th verse. Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. O Lord God of heaven and earth, we come before you now and pray that asking that you would fill us with your spirit to the fullest measure this morning, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes would be opened, our ears be opened so that we may see the very thing that we need to see this morning, according to your divine will for each of us, that we may hear the very hope the very promise, the very admonition that we need to hear this morning. And I pray, O Lord, that you would speak through me, that I would utter no words from my mouth other than the ones that you would have spoken this morning for your people, for their good, and for our joy. And I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So this is still the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry on the donkey. This is still that Sunday. Jesus still has five days left to live. Well, until he has to wait three days and then live again. And during this Sunday afternoon, with the day and the week of Passover, The city of Jerusalem is just filled with pilgrims from all over the world coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And John tells us that there were some Greeks here. And these Greeks would have been what are referred to as Hellenistic Jews. They were Greek by their very nature, what would be referred to as Gentiles, but they had converted to Judaism, probably been circumcised, and were participating as a Jew, sort of. They were never really fully accepted by the Pharisees and the religious elites in Jerusalem. They were always second-class Jews and second-class proselytes of Judaism. And yet here they are at this feast, and they've heard about Jesus, and they want to meet Jesus Catch the imagery here. We have just heard in the previous verses, 
Starting in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet Jesus was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Catch this image. They even acknowledge, they unwittingly prophesy that the world is coming to Jesus. And what happens in the very next verse? The Gentiles, the Greeks are coming to Jesus. And of course, you also have this imagery of the, at the very same time the Gentiles are coming to Jesus, it's the Jews who are rejecting him. But that shouldn't surprise us. All throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen this play out over and over where the Jewish religious leaders are rejecting Jesus. And sometimes even the Jewish people themselves end up divided about who Jesus is. But this should have been plain to us from the very beginning of the Gospel of John when we started that over a year ago. Because what is it John says in the first chapter? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So it's no surprise to us that the Jews are rejecting Jesus. John's been telling us this the whole time. But what is different, what is new, is that it's the non-Jews who are coming to Jesus. They're the ones who are receiving him. They're actually seeking him out versus just receiving him if he shows up in their region. And so they go to Philip, and who is from Bethsaida, which is a small village on the northeast side of the Lake of Galilee, just a few miles from Capernaum where Jesus has centered all of his adult ministry life there, the village of Peter and Andrew. And so they go to Philip and they ask him, can we see Jesus? And of course, the question is immediately raised, why do they go to Philip? Philip, in some way that is not quite clear, had a connection with some of these Greeks and some of the individuals. And so they ask him to see Jesus. And what's interesting to me is he goes and speaks to Andrew. And this is Andrew, the brother of Peter that he's going, that he talks to. As you remember, John, John's brother James and Peter are kind of the three inner circles who are most trusted by Jesus or the closest to him. And they're the ones that go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they're the closest to Jesus of all the disciples. And so Philip goes to Andrew to see what he thinks, I'm assuming. Doesn't really say. But the important part is, is that Andrew and Philip decide that they need to go and tell Jesus that these Greeks want to see him. And then Jesus gives this kind of an odd answer. Don't you think it's odd? He doesn't say, yes, they can come or no, they cannot come. His response to the news that these Greeks want to see him is that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23. I mean, you can imagine Philip and Andrew. Yes. That's, that's, yes, Jesus, it's your hour to be glorified. Now, what do we tell these Greeks that have asked us to come bring us to you? Right? 
well, this isn't Jesus being odd or Jesus being his little bit weird self. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What John does often when he is writing this gospel, as we've talked about before, he doesn't write chronologically. He's not writing a historical narrative, a biography, the way Luke writes his gospel, nor like Matthew wrote in his gospel, and at many times Mark. Now, when John is giving the narratives like this of the historical events, he's doing it to set up the main point. The main point is that now Jesus' hour has come, right? What is it he said throughout the entire Gospel of John every time he does a miracle and the people want to make him a king or do something? My hour has not come. When the disciples are like, man, why do you put up with these Pharisees? Why don't you just like slap them down with one of your miracles and, you know, take over the temple? And what is Jesus' response? My hour has not come, but now it has. His hour is come finally. And it is this moment of these Greeks coming to seek Jesus that is the impetus for him telling his disciples, now is the time. But of course, as we've seen so often and know from our readings of the other Gospels, the hour that Jesus has come to is not the one they think it's going to be. They're expecting Jesus to, you know, look, he just, he just rode into town on a horse, on a donkey's colt, fulfilling the Zechariah prophecy of the Messiah's coming into Jerusalem, He had just raised Lazarus from the dead a few weeks earlier, and here's Lazarus with him in some form or fashion as he goes up into Jerusalem. And I I can say that because we see this, this, these verses immediately before it talking about Lazarus and the people knowing that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And here's Jesus and his disciples coming in this victory celebration. It's almost like a, like a victory march, a parade going into Jerusalem with the expectation that he's going to be crowned the king of Jerusalem and the king of Israel. And then when he says, now is my hour come, the disciples are thinking, yeah, finally, it's time to put a crown on Jesus' head. And if they did have said, if they had said such a thing, they would have been right. It just wasn't the crown they were thinking it would be. Instead of a crown of gold, it was a crown of thorns. Instead of a throne, it was a cross. This is what Jesus means about my hour has come and I will be glorified. And the Son of Man will be glorified, is what Jesus said. He's glorified not by taking a gold throne and a gold crown, but by taking, by being lifted up on the cross and receiving a crown of thorns. This is Jesus being glorified. This is a weird glorification. If this is your idea of glorification, can I get a pass? Right? No, thank you. But Jesus knew that this was his purpose. He came for this very thing to be crucified, nailed to a cross, and to bear the weight of the sin of the world, 
including your sin and mine, so that we could be free of it, to be released from the sentence of our sins and to be forgiven and to be set free. That's why he did it, so you and I could be free. The question then becomes, well, what are we supposed to do with this freedom that he's given us? What do we do with it? Well, in part of that answer of what do we do with this freedom that Christ has given us comes in these next verses, 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. First off, I grew up on a farm. I have planted many acres of wheat in my younger days and seen and harvested and drove the truck with tons, not tons, you know, hundreds of bushels of wheat in it. So I have some familiarity with this experience. And, and I know that when you put a kernel of wheat in the ground to plant it for raising a wheat crop, it doesn't really die, right? It just, it, it does what its purpose is. It sprouts a new plant, right? But that doesn't mean that Jesus is speaking incorrectly here, that somehow he's mistaken on the science of seed germination. I mean, he created it, so it's not like he knows, doesn't know what's going on. So the answer to this idea that, that the kernel of wheat goes into the earth and dies is that's the way they saw it in that time. He's speaking to them in their context, in their understanding of where they are. You put the, you put the piece of, you put the kernel of wheat into the ground and it dies, but its death generates a new plant. That's the way they saw it. That's the way they understood it. So he's speaking to them in that way. But the bigger question, of course, is what does it really mean for this wheat to go in the ground and for it to bear much fruit? More precisely, what does it mean for you and me? I'm not big on being buried alive. So I'm really kind of hoping that this doesn't mean I have to like go into the ground. Although one day I will. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36, on that day, the kernel of our body is buried into the ground so that in the future it may bear the fruit of a new glorified body. But in between today and that day, there's still some burying and still some fruit that needs to be produced. So when Jesus is speaking here, he's obviously speaking metaphorically about us being grains of wheat that are dropped into the ground so that we can bear much fruit. And he talks about this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kernel of wheat is our experiential life. The way we live our life is what he's referring to. Are we willing to let who we were before Christ be buried in the ground and left as what it was so that we may bear the fruit of who we are now in Christ? 
We are a new creation. First Corinthians 517. So in this new creation, we are going to bear much more fruit that is glorifying to Christ and satisfying to our souls than if we had stayed who we were. Our old identity is dead. It's buried in the ground. And we now have this new identity of bought, sanctified, glorified, and redeemed. Oh, just the, just the phrase, he has redeemed us, is enough to make my heart sing. Oh, he has redeemed us. And he's redeemed us that we may bear good fruit. This is what Paul tells Timothy. That we may bear good fruit, appoint good works appointed to us. Christ has appointed good works for us to do. And we just, we just do them. But look, look here, okay. I have been really, well, I've been good at it, but I've been bad at it. So I'm not sure how to say it. I was really good at trying to do it in my own fleshly nature, the good works. Right? I'm going to do these good things. And I know that Jesus has called me to do these good things, but I'm doing it. I'm not doing it with Jesus. I'm doing it by myself. And I was good at that. But I was bad at it. Because it doesn't work very well to try to do it by ourselves. But when I would stop, back up, and do it with Christ in the power of the Spirit, then it would be good. It would be a good work, as in good success, and it would be a good work as in it glorifies his name. And I think in part that's exactly what he's getting at. The I'm going to do it has to go into the ground and die. And the I'm going to walk with Jesus and do this as he's doing it with him has to come up and bear the fruit. And that actually sounds like a pretty good way to do it to me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd rather do it with Jesus and not bear all the burden to do it by myself. Especially when I'm going to not do it very well doing it by myself. And here's the thing. Okay? Some of you are not going to like this, but I can't help it. It's not my fault. I'm just the messenger here. Some of you know you know that Jesus has called you to do something. And for whatever reasons, you've been hesitant or resistant. It's time to put that fear in the ground. It's time to put that hesitancy and resistance in the ground. And it's time to bear the fruit, not just the fruit of obedience, but the actual fruit of the good work he's asking you to do. He's called you to do it. I don't know what that work is. God doesn't, as much as I would like for him to, he does not give me a list of things that he's called each of you to do. He doesn't tell me that. So I have no idea what it is. But for some of you in this room, you've been called 
You've been given the clarity of the mission and you need to go. You need to go. You need to do it. I don't know what it is, but you need to do it. You need to do it not only because it will bear good fruit for others. You need to do it because it will bear good fruit for you. There'll be the joy of walking with Christ as you do it with him. There'll be the delight of his fellowship. There'll be the beauty of what he does in you and how he transforms you through this walk. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. It is just glorious what he turns us into when we walk in obedience with him to the things he's called us to do. Because it's not the thing, it's not the thing that's important. It matters, but it's not the thing that's important. The the part that you're doing something to do, the, the, the task, that's not the important part. The important part is how he changes us through the actions and through the activity and through the personal growth that it takes to do this task he's called us to do. Look here, in case there was any confusion about this, I'm talking from personal experience. Okay, This was not my number one, this was not my A plan for my life. Some of you know, and some of you may not have known, that when I was 18 years old, April of 2000, no, not 2000, April of 1983, I've got my life planned out. I've already been accepted to Clemson University. I'm planning to get a PhD in genetics and become a plant breeder. I had it all. It was, I'm, I am out the door as soon as graduation comes and start living my life in this, out of this small little country church in the middle between a cow pasture and a peach orchard. I'm out. And there, in that very church, in the very pulpit from which I had watched many faithful men pastor and shepherd our small little church, the Lord clearly called me to pastoral ministry. This is, this, I know what you had planned, but this is not it. You're going to do something different. And unfortunately, my response was, no, not me, not that, no way. Because I already had plans for my life. And so for 20 years, even though I wasn't rebellious in the sense of, you know, I quit going to church or doing all these other things, I was still, you know, the entire 20 years of my disobedience, I was by all measures that anybody would say a faithful disciple of Jesus. But there was just this undercurrent of rebellion. Because I didn't obey. And it took 20 years. November of 2003. The Lord just reminded me that I disobeyed him 20 years earlier. And then from that moment forward, there was no no more no's. And so from 2003 until today, 2024, 20 years later, I've been stretched, I've been grown, I've been I've been all the things I'm describing to you to be here in this room 
standing in this pulpit in answer to what he called me to go do. This is what I mean by it's not the task. Do I love standing in this pulpit and preaching the word of God? Oh, yes. I do. The thing that 40 years ago I would have, that I disdained doing, I now love. But but it is not the task of reading and preparing and coming into this pulpit to preach the word of God to you that gives me joy. It is the walking with him, the sense of oneness and fellowship with him as I do this task in the spirit. The joy of walking with him, or in this case, standing with him, while I proclaim his word to you. That desire to be a plant breeder had to go into the ground. It had to die. But it is born the fruit of what I'm doing today and what I do with some of you individually at different times when things just go sideways in your life. And by God's mercy and grace, I get to participate in the joy and celebration with you when things go great, when things go right. Hallelujah. When I think back over 2023, look, I mean, you guys know what that year was like for me. Physically, it was horrid, 2023. Just awful. And it's easy for me to remember just how awful it was physically. But by his mercies, I'm remembering the two weddings we did in this church. I'm remembering the baptisms we did in this church. I'm remembering the seeing of people who've come to be a part of our church body who weren't in 2022. And what a joy to be here. And in the case of us personally, the the beauty of a new grandson while still enjoying the three grandchildren we had before this fourth one. And watching so many of you grow. I mean, I could... I could name several people in the room who have grown so much in my eyes in 2023. They had to step out of their comfort zones and do things that they didn't want to do. But in doing so, they blessed all of us. The fear needs to go in the ground. The hesitancy and resistance needs to go in the ground. And let the fruit Let the fruit come out. Let the fruit come out. Because if anyone serves Jesus, he must follow Jesus. And where Jesus is, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves Jesus, the Father will honor him. There is great joy to be felt here, but there is even more joy to be felt in the next life by following Jesus.
by walking with him where he's going. And that, that is my plea and admonition to you. Follow Jesus where he is going because walking with him to where he is going brings great joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your mercy and for your goodness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you let us join you in the work that you are doing. Thank you, Father, for the way you grow us by walking with you and following you. And I pray, Lord, it is my heart's desire that every single person who hears my voice will yield to the call to follow you and to go with you wherever you are taking them. And I just praise you, Lord. I just give you glory for the responses to the people who are going to agree to follow you and go where you call them to go. I just praise you and thank you for that. And pray, O Lord, that we get to see the gloriously beautiful fruit that comes from within the person and from what they are called to do. In Jesus' name, amen.